From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The truth for me, at every juncture of education that I attain, my mother would always tell me, you are not in those rooms alone. You take the sisters that did not get opportunities and scholarships, that did not get access to these opportunities and initiatives and programs that you are a part of. You take them with you. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Candace Marie Benbow. She's a theologian, essayist, columnist, baker, an educator whose work gives voice to black women's shared experiences of faith, healing, and wholeness. Named by Sojourners as one of the 10 Christian women shaping the church in 2020, she's written for Essence, Glamour, The Root, Vice, Shondaland, Madame Noir, and the Me Too movement. Benbo created the hashtag Lemonade Syllabus social media campaign, founded the media boot boutique Zion Hill Media Group, and, in memory of her mother, established the Louise Marie Foundation to support HBCU nursing students and community mental health projects. Today we're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Candice Marie Benbo, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this book because it brings together so many pieces that I think are important for us to talk about as much as possible. This book is a memoir in one sense. It is a it's a recounting of your journey from a certain type of Christianity to a more expansive view of faith. We'll talk about that. It's a beloved tribute to your mother. And it is also just a a, a scathing rebuke of the sexism, the heterosexism, the racism that is present at all levels of the American Christian church right now. So there's a lot of things for us to talk about in this conversation. But I think the place where I want to begin is at a moment when you're at Duke Divinity School and you are sitting in the library and one of your white male classmates sits down with you at a table at the library. You haven't invited him to sit down, but he just comes and he sits down at the table and he starts peppering you with questions. And he wants to understand whether you're a black theologian or a real normal theologian. And I, if you will, I'd love it if you would take us back to that moment and then what followed from that encounter. Yeah, so first, thanks for having me again. We had a couple of very interesting moments regarding race at Duke, which I think is an amazing requirement of our paradigm is that you had to take a Black Church Studies course for graduation. And most of my white counterparts did not like that because they had to sit with the ways that African-Americans and people of color don't center whiteness or evangelicalism as part of their faith expression and experience. And so we had a lot of moments that were fraught with tension. And this particular classmate had been trying to have a conversation with me and I had been actively avoiding it. And in the library, I could not leave. If if I would have left it would have been clear that I was intentionally avoiding him. And I tell people I was trying to be more like Jesus that day. So I was like, I can't be rude. And so he asked this question, do you consider yourself a Black theologian or are you a regular theologian? As if to suggest that somehow engaging in 
any theological interpretation or, or articulation that is born out of my lived experience, as most as theology is, right, is somehow left of center, abnormal, and niche, right? And I felt like we'd had enough dialogue, education, to understand the nuanced complexity of that, that while African-Americans and people of color have theological expressions that are that speak directly to their experiences, this is not fringe theology. And so I was like, I could have this conversation with him or I could not. <laughs> And I just said, I'm a read the theologians. And he looks at me and he came up with, who's that? And I'm getting my stuff together. And I said, I did. I came up with it just now. And as I'm leaving, I will say, and I say in the book, even though I was being snarky and petty, saying it gave me clarity. And I think what so many of us, particularly young African-American women in my context, but young African-American people of faith who grew up both in the church and are context within hip-hop culture, have been looking for a way to articulate our lived experiences. And random theology gave me the opportunity to do that. Gives me the opportunity, yeah. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. We're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. So I want to linger with this moment at Duke Divinity School just for a question or two more. So this student sits down decides that he has the right to engage you in a conversation about whether or not you're a regular theologian. You respond that you're a red lip theologian, and we will spend some time in the conversation getting at the heart of what that means. But I want to return to something that you said as you were setting up this scene. You said that all the students at Duke Divinity School had been required to take some courses where whiteness was decentered, where black experience and African American narratives became a central part of the discussion. Nevertheless, even though the institution was taking steps to center these voices and these experiences, institutionally, this young student, this colleague of yours, felt the cover for his bigotry. He felt safe to be able to sit down and say, nevertheless, we still know what narrative is really central here. And I want to ask about that friction to where the school was trying to center a different kind of conversation. Nevertheless, the institution snapped back to that same kind of conversation. Could you speak to that tension in your experience of it? Yeah, I think a lot of it goes to the heart of the way that we think that we want something and we've constructed what we think it's supposed to. And then there are people who who show us Right. That through their own experiences that we get to dictate what these conversations, particularly that center us, should be and should and how they should move. And I think what happened with so many of my classmates is that they wanted to engage Black theology and Black spirituality from their lens. And that always centered them. And you can't do that. You can't live into a force, a force of reality to embody you so that it makes you comfortable. And we had a lot of moments. And to be fair, most people of color who are in theological education have those moments with their white colleague and counterpart because they don't really know or understand what it means to move beyond their own ideologies to a place that creates room for other people's lived experiences. I really like the way that you phrase that, creating room for other people's lived experiences. One of the 
kind of one of the 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 themes that rings out through your book red lip theology is the inability of institutions that declare themselves to be christian to really make room for people's lived experiences particularly people's trauma their grief their pain and we're not just talking about seminaries we're talking about churches and so the whole notion of it says Christ with their lips, but it does something different with its actions. That's a friction that comes out so clearly in your book, and I, I've so appreciated that as a reader. I, I, I wonder what it's like as you encountered, and you mentioned this just a moment ago, as you encountered others that had gone into the academy and deep into the leadership of the church who were encountering and were embodying uh, kind of particularly African-American woman's lived experience, oftentimes your expectations of how they would be was different from how they actually were towards you. I wonder if you could speak about some of that expectation and friction as well. Yeah, I think one of the things that we have to stay rooted in is the way that white supremacy is harmful on a very simplistic level and on a very complicated level. There are wounds very real wounds. And so many of the women who I looked up to have been deeply wounded by the ways that racism and sexism converged in their life. And oftentimes they could not reckon with their own traumas and how they replicated them on young sisters like myself. And so even as I spoke about it, what I hoped to do and aim to do and tried to do was be very considerate in my speech because I wanted to lift and name the ways that trauma informs our action and how we don't really do the work to be better and to heal from it. We can wound in ways that we may have never, ever wanted to, but we cause pain and we cause harm, even if we never, ever intended to. And so for me, that becomes what the, I want to say that becomes my guiding principle is like, how do I acknowledge the traumas and pains that have been in my life? and move in a place that does not create even more pain and trauma, but holds the systems accountable that did it, but not not the people who are looking to me for mentorship, who are looking to me for guidance, who are also uniquely impacted by those same systems as well. It strikes me that this book, Red Lip Theology, is an attempt to get at a type of healing process, that it's an attempt to name things and to write through the pain of loss. And so I wonder, as you were thinking about the structure of this book, it's not structured like a systematic theology, even though the word theology is on the cover. It's structured like a set of vignettes, essays, memoirs. Talk to me about thinking with your editors about the structure of how this book needed to be in order to convey what you wanted it to be. It's theology, but maybe, again, not the kind of regular, and I'm scare-quoting regular theology that that young man that sat down at the table with you may have expected. Yeah, part of it was because I wanted to have a conversation that that centered Black women. And so in having a conversation that centered Black women, it meant that I would use a different mechanism for theological discussion that rooted us. And so I knew if I'm having conversations with sisters that are like me, right, and and conversations, and I talk about in the book, how engaging in beauty and a beauty regimen and going to school and immersing myself in theological education were getting ahead of me. And so looking at it from that perspective, I couldn't help but push myself to and sit with my editors, my editor, Portia Burke, to say, how can we have deep theological discussion that's accessible? Because the truth for me, at every juncture of education that I attained, my mother would always tell me, you are not 
in those rooms alone. You take the sisters that did not get opportunities or scholarships, that did not get access to these opportunities and initiatives and programs that you are a part of. You take them with you. My professor, Dr. Robert Wortham, and my master's program, and when I was getting a, a, a master's in sociology, he said, you don't get education just for education's sake. Like it has to do some things. And I think you, as well as listeners, will understand in grad school and in divinity school, regardless of whatever graduate program you're in, but especially in graduate school and in seminary, you have these robust conversations about the lived experiences of everyday folk that don't ever get the opportunity to be a part of these conversations. And so for me, it was like, why? Like, womanist theology is a beautiful and necessary theoretical framework. And most Black women in the church have never heard of womanist theology. They've never engaged with it critically because it's an academic discourse. So what does it mean for me to take the opportunities that I've been given, the education that I've been afforded, and create works that are accessible to the masses that have these conversations? So that's what, you know, we set out to do with this, with the framework of Red Lip Theology is what I plan to set out to do with every other book. You know, we're starting the next book. And for me, writing, for me, writing is reading. So I'll spend the next three months just you reading books to help to crystallize my argument. And I'm pretty sure in the midst of that, a frame, a dope framework for how I want to have this conversation will emerge and we'll use that one. But I, because I think it's important to to make these themes, these ideologies, these frameworks accessible to the very people that, that we're using as our, our, our objects of study. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. We're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. She's a theologian, essayist, columnist, baker, and educator whose work gives voice to Black women's shared experiences of faith, healing, and wholeness. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Well, we've begun to name this in the conversation And I I think now for listeners, if we can begin to lay out when you talk about red lip theology and you spend all of these essays in the book developing aspects of what that means, but you've mentioned, among other things, things like a beauty regimen and also paying attention to African-American women's experience. Maybe give us some of the top level ideas about what you're meaning by red lip theology here. Very, very succinctly and broadly. is the lens through which I understand myself as a Black millennial woman of faith. And so a relic theology gives room for the ways that we are both steeped in church culture as well as hip-hop culture and gives room for the feminism, the activism that emerges as one is fully enmeshed in both of those worlds. And so relic theology is an opportunity for young Black women to have very intentional conversations 
about how they see themselves in the world and how they desire a a deeper kind of kinship and relationship, not only with the divine, but with themselves and how both of those relationships inform each other. And so that is what you get when you're reading these essays. How do the relationships that we have with ourselves and the relationship that we have with the divine inform each other so that we can be better people for ourselves and for the world. In that answer, you mentioned the, the church and hip hop, feminism and activism, learning to have a relationship not only to God, but to themselves. But there was also a word that kind of rang out when you were describing red lip theology, and that's being a millennial woman of faith, a black millennial woman of faith. And that was one thing as a person who's not a millennial, older, I'm Generation X, that really rang out to me because interactions with face-to-face relationships are important to this experience, but you also take into account and really center the interactions that happen online, social media. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that and how in particular, that sort of shifted conversations with your mother over time, because she was still trying to figure out how all of this worked. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing. Millennials get such a bad rap. I mean, and to our, to, to our credit, some of it is earned. But the truth is that we really are the generation that is at the turn of the century having some amazing experiences, being the children of boomers who were the vanguards in their own right, right? And us taking it much further than they did. One, they wanted us to, but two, we also had our own bravado, have our own bravado. We, my grandma just always said, you, we're like a group. She's like, you millennials just just do what you want to do, you know? And and I think that it was important for me to say that this is about, and I say this by also honoring and lifting, that there have been others who have read Red Lip Theology, who are Gen Xers, who are boomers, who reach out and are like, you wrote for me too. This resonated with me too. So I want to lift and name that. At the same time, There is something to be said about the ways that we are able to live into a certain kind of freedom and access and opportunity that is the direct benefit of the work previous generations have done while also being carved and created in our own way and in our own in our own you know time and doing and so i wanted to specifically name that because there are contours of the millennial life that are specifically millennial that are completely different than gen z right that my cousins who are gen z do not know a world without technology as important as technology is to me, and as vital as technology is, I remember being in computer class when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school, right? I remember, like, my grandmother, I still have the t-shirt. When I was a little girl, my grandmother made me a t-shirt. It's a red t-shirt. The front of it has my name in gold, class of 2000. And Apple, because that was when Apple had come out and it was big. And on the back, it says computer generation. Because even as a girl, as a young kid, my grandmother knew this class of 2000, like what they will do and what they will experience will be unlike anything that we've seen before. And I wanted to lift that that is important to name. That's worth study. We're seeing it in a lot of in a lot of fields because we're old enough now to study and to think through our own lived experiences and realities. But I wanted to be a part and I wanted really theology and all the work that I do to be a part of that kind of study and exploration of millennial lives. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. We're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. So one of the voices that is really central to your book, Red Lip Theology, is the voice and the presence of your mother, Deborah Louise Benbow. And I wonder if you would be willing to tell my listeners a little bit about your mother and why she was so central to this story. My mom was just an amazing person. She was a church girl just like me, and she met my father in church. They both sang on the choir. That's how they met. She fell in love. I like to think and hope he he loved her too. But and she had me, she got pregnant and she had me. And that set off this journey, one of people being a bit disappointed in her because she was not married. The church that we were a part of, uh, well, that she was a part of when she was pregnant with me, um, required that she stand in front of the congregation and publicly apologize. Mind you, my father went to the same church and was on the same choir. And that expectation was not of him and on him. And my mom said she couldn't do it. She could not, you know, stand up and apologize and say that I was sin. So she refused to do it. And my mom raised me, I tell people, in this like vortex of like faith and feminism, because as a single mother who was college educated, who was a registered nurse, I saw my mom do it, you know, and she worked hard to ensure that I did not lack for anything simply because my father wasn't there. She also was very intentional and serious about raising me in church. She believed that was a place that I would be safe. She believed that would be the place where in order for me to be this productive human being, that's where I needed to be. And so I say all that to say, I don't know God without my mom. My mother was the first God I knew. She gave me life and her body, her literal body was heaven for me. It was where I was safe. It was where she nurtured me for nine months. And then anywhere she was when after I was born was always the place I was most safe. And so I don't, I don't know God. I don't know faith. Without my mom, she introduced me to faith, which she passed unexpectedly. It took me on this very, I can use adjectives differently now because I'm on the other side of it. But at the time, it was deeply painful, deeply uncomfortable journey of faith, trying to figure out what it meant to navigate life without her. The existential questions of why it happened, why her and not me. And not even me, but why was I not? One of my faith, one of my greatest fears was to not something happening to my mother and me not being there. And that was her greatest fear too. And so I had a lot of questions about why I was living my worst nightmare. And I had to journey. Relic theology is also about the journey to a deeply authentic faith and a deeply authentic relationship with God that I got to through my mother's, through healing and coming to terms with her death. And what is very interesting, David, and I said this to a few people, is uh, when this, and and very few, because it often doesn't come up when I'm interviewed, I didn't set out to write about her. And had no idea that that when I would write, I would write so much about her. That just happened. But it felt genuine and it was authentic. And so we stayed there. I didn't try to force myself to write differently, but it made sense because I would not know who my, who God is without my mother in life and in death. And, and I think... A lot of us, whether 
particularly those of us who our lives intersect with faith, whether we are, whether we ascribe to to belief ourselves or whether our families do, a lot can be said about Black women's relationships with their mothers. I think it is one of the most, if not the most difficult relationship we navigate because as nine Black women have read, read the theology, and I said this, they said the same thing, that that relationship with your mother is a, it's a doozy because you are trying to balance being the daughter that you that either she has said she wants or you think that she wants with the woman that you are becoming. And oftentimes those do not align in the ways that we may think that they need to or should. And so yeah, I I am I'm grateful that Reli theology creates an opportunity for and I just look at a mother-daughter relationship. I don't think that I, I think my mom, I believe my mom was amazing. It was the best my mom in the world. But I don't think that I, I fainted her in a way that did not give the complexities of our relationship because they were there. And I think that to write about her and to write about us and not be honest about that would have been a disservice to her too. But I also wanted to show mothers and to show daughters and to show parents and children that it is possible to be different in some profound ways and still love each other. Um, my mama did not like get everything. Like my mama would be like, "Girl, what are you talking about and why?" Like we should feel like, I mean, our fiercest fight. And arguments were like theology. Like my mom, I did not believe there was a hell. My mom, if, if you don't hurry up and believe it, you might end up there. And I want to see you again one day. You know, like that was, it would be so funny to to sit there and watch us fire and go back and forth. And yet my mother showed up to my graduation wearing red, wearing red lipstick. She bought me a tube from Mac when she bought hers. I have her cell phone and in her phone was a a photo shoot, a selfie photo shoot that she did the night of my graduation. And I treasure, I have behind me one of the pictures that she took of her red lipstick. And she didn't have to, she didn't have to get it, but she trusted that she raised me well and she trusted the God that she entrusted me to. And sometimes what I hope parents realize is that's all you can do. And you've got to believe that your children will do the rest. Well, I'm I'm grateful for how your mother shows up in your book, Red Lip Theology. And I just want to express my deepest sympathies for her loss. And I'm just, I'm grateful that you were able to take that pain and that grief and turn it into something as effective as you did. Let's take a quick break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. She's a theologian, essayist, columnist, baker, and educator whose work gives voice to black women's shared experiences of faith, healing, and wholeness. We're speaking today about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. She's a theologian, essayist, columnist, baker, and educator whose work gives voice to Black women's shared experiences of faith, healing, and wholeness. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. A little earlier in our conversation, you talked about the effects that your mother's influence had on your life, and you used the phrase, a vortex of faith and feminism. And I really was struck by that phrase, in part because 
it seems in reading through the whole of your book, Red Lip Theology, that vortex of faith and feminism has put you on a journey where, and these are my words, not yours, so feel free to correct me, but the Christian experience, the Christian faith maybe was no longer large enough for your own faith and exploration of faith. And I wonder if you can now help my listeners understand the journey that you've been on, not necessarily to abandon Christianity, but to expand Christianity into new realms and into new understandings. Yeah, where I have, I was always leaning to was that I was always someone who embraced a certain level of spiritual fluidity. And I look back as a kid, right? Like I talk about in the book, how like in Bible study, my mama would make me write my questions down first because she would be like, man, you're not going to get up here and be asking that crazy. How do people think of that? You know, I don't know how to raise my child. But a lot of it was also because my mama knew that some of the questions that I was asking were not also that the church, the pastors, the people that were in the pews may not have been ready for those kinds of conversations, especially coming from a child. Like, I remember asking my mama one day, I was like, Jesus can't be the only way to God. And she was like, what do you mean? Jesus is the the way, the truth, and the life moment comes to the reciting on the scripture. And I remember saying to her, I said, well, if that's the case, then why did God tell Hagar that he was going to protect her and make sure that Ishmael was okay and make Ishmael's name great and nations would come from Ishmael? Ishmael. And my mama just got quiet. And then she said, don't say that in church. And it was in the thing. And um, I always refused to limit spirit, even if I didn't know that I was refusing. Growing up in a Black family, there were ways that I watched other technologies of the spirit take place in my family. When we had dreams, we went to certain family members to have them interpreted. When people were sick, you went to certain people to in the family to lay hands on you. If you were a kid and you showed a certain kind, like you used to say things like, that girl been here before, that boy been here before, right? When you possessed a certain kind of gifting, family members will make sure that you, you hang around the family member that also had that gifting so that they can help to nurture and protect it, right? And so I never, even if Black people and even in my family was in church every Sunday, we were never without other ways of knowing spirit. And as I got older, I, be- I became much more freer in my ability to name that as true for myself. I tell people my faith is found in the teachings of Jesus, the wisdom of my ancestors, and the power of Black womanhood. All of those things combined deepen my faith and my spirituality, and they inform them. And I, Jesus guides, guides my life. His work, his person and his work guide my life. And I refuse to allow spirit to be confined in my life. And I'm not alone in that. And so what has been beautiful is the ways that relic theology and other conversations allow for people to recognize the existence of Christians like me. And that we don't have to hide that truth about ourselves, even if others feel uncomfortable. So much in that answer that I want to dive into, but one thing in particular that struck me both in reading your book, Red Lip Theology, and just now, is this concept of spiritual fluidity. And when I read that in your book, I heard an echo of what younger generations are now calling gender fluidity, the willingness to be mobile from one pole to another. Now, when I make that comparison, does that sound right to you, or do you mean gender fluidity and spiritual fluid, fluidity as distinct things and not overlapping in that way? I think that that they inform each other, but what I want to name and lift and honor are the ways that 
is the way that gender fluidity gives people the ability to honor and name their existence for themselves very differently from and apart from binary, social binaries that are harmful. So I want to always keep that distinction as an important one and a necessary one. But I do think that on some level, the work of those who honor and who name gender fluidity give us a framework and a permission to name and explore the ways that we're able to move through religious expression in ways that are healing and in ways that are whole that don't that that don't lean into the binary that suggests that one has to just be this in order to be Christian, that one has to just be this in order to be Muslim, especially because in our faith and in, in the traditional ways in which a faith is constructed, it doesn't leave room for for women to embrace any kind of agency. It doesn't leave room for the existence of, of queer people to live into their identity and into their faith. And so, so pushing beyond the limits and the expectations of that give us much more fertile ground to think and to imagine in ways that are healthy. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. We're talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. A moment ago, you used a phrase that I want to circle back to because it just, it grabbed me. You talked about technologies of the spirit, and I loved that so much. And the example that you gave is when someone has a dream or a vision and that there are others in the community that maybe have that same ability to interpret. And so you bring them together so that these elders can nurture and protect the gifting that's there and present in this technology of the spirit. But I just want to explore that phrase for a moment or two, because I've never heard that before, but light bulbs went off when you said it. Can you tell me and my listeners more about technologies of the spirit? Yeah, like all of these systems that are present that go into who we are and who who we desire to be, who we claim to be, who we want to be, and that too often we have not recognized them or named them in ways that give them the proper respect and care that they need for how powerful they are for us and to us. And so for me, that's where when I think about all of the ways that I have come into a knowing, they all work together. They all, even as unique and as nuanced as they are, in my life, they work together. And in their working together, they create the system that sustains me. And we have to live into and honor the systems that sustain us, all of them, and not believe that that one has to supersede all of them because somebody said, right? Like, you know, no, we know what works for the lives that we need. We know what works for the people that we are. And we have to make that as real and as true for us as anything else. In our conversation, you've discussed at certain points the way in which various generations and various readers have received your book, Red Lip Theology. And I I wonder, as a writer, how you imagined this book would be used and how perhaps you've been surprised by some of the ways in which people have communicated to you that they have received it, that they are using it, that they've been grown and stretched by reading it? Yeah, I think what happens is you don't know (laughs) how you sit down and you write this book and you hope that it resonates with people. And then people reach out to you and tell you how it has changed their lives. And you're left with this profound sense of awe, right? That 
there was a time where before before that I would be frustrated because I felt like people intentionally misinterpreted my work or that I felt like people were woefully and willfully missing the point to be harmful or to be mean. And coming out of this book, coming, releasing it into the world and seeing how people are resonating with it, it it makes those conversations less significant because it doesn't matter. (laughs) It literally absolutely does not matter what they think because you write for yourself to heal the parts of you that need to be healed but then you also write for people who are longing for these conversations in a different way than than they've had them and you can't let the people who intentionally misread you who want to be contrarian you can't let them win and they need, like, you just, you just can't. And so I've just been really grateful for the way that people have supported and leaned into what relic theology is doing and saying. And I make myself stay there because there is no, no need to be anywhere else other than, than right there in that space. You talk about in your book, Red Lip Theology, some of the breaking points that you have had with more traditional forms of academic theology. You're choosing to do this theological work outside of the traditional space of the academy or the church. And I wonder if you could talk to my listeners a little bit about this third space that you're exploring. What, where do you find the most fertile theological ground now outside of academic theology and church theology? I find it in, in, in the spaces of pop culture. I find it in the digital realm. I think we're all yearning for and looking for answers to some existential questions that COVID has forced a lot of us to confront that we can't ignore. And so I, I find that space to be one, a space that's so prime with opportunity. And I think to its credit, if I could say that, that the social world and social spaces, because we can bully it, it's creating family and it's creating community in ways that a lot of people are ignoring. And I find, I find there is where a lot of us are able to really get to the heart of a lot of questions that matter. And so that's where I have been laying for a while my foundation and grounding. And that's where I am seeing, I'm seeing it thrive. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that there's a new book on the horizon that you're working on. Would you be willing to talk to us a little bit about what that project's going to look like? Yeah, um, I am writing about love. I think on some levels, I've just been tired of, of when it comes to love and relationships, that men write so much about it for women, especially in my context, um, that those become, like, they become relationship experts. And I, this is crazy, the craziest thing to me. And it's not that even this book is my intent to be a relationship expert because I am definitely not. But I do think that I do think that there is a conversation that we need to have about love. There's a conversation that we need to have about, especially in a moment that we're in the world, our forms of love. I believe that love is the world's greatest superpower. And so I'm excited to spend some time just writing about it and musing about it and reading about it to to get to the heart of what I feel I'm being called to say in this moment about it. So that's where my summer will be reading and the fall will be writing. So we'll we'll see. We'll see uh, where it all takes (laughs) us. Well, Candace Marie Benbow, 
I was trained in a certain type of theology, and I think that you can imagine the kind of theological education that I've had. And I just want to say your book, Red Lip Theology, was a breath of fresh air. I am trying on every level to unlearn what I've been schooled in, and I found that your book was a really good guide to places where I can do more deep listening and, more importantly, just more deep shutting up around certain pieces. I I recognize that there was a lot of pain that went into the creation of this book and a lot of loss, but I want to say how grateful I am that you took that grief, that trauma, that loss, and that you turned it into something as powerful and as important as this book, Red Lip Theology. Thank you for taking the time to write it, and thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Candace Marie Benbow. She's a theologian, essayist, columnist, baker, and educator whose work gives voice to Black women's shared experiences of faith, healing, and wholeness. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.